Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, good morning. Welcome to those online. Welcome to those in here. I wanted to quickly tell you before we get into today's message, I um, wanted to remind you of something coming up in a couple weeks, Saturday, June 19th. We're going to continue on a biblical conversation about mental wellness. We started this a few weeks ago on a Saturday. And basically what we're talking about here when we say mental wellness is everything from you can think of from stress and anxiety, which many of us have experienced in this last season of time. And just because we're kind of getting beyond some things, like COVID and other things like that, doesn't mean that those things don't linger. And of course, all the way to even some deeper issues that we might be facing. And so we started a conversation on that a couple of, uh, of weeks ago, and it really generated some good questions. And those you can kind of see on the back of this card. And what we wanted to cover on June 19th are these things. How do, how do we identify somebody that's struggling? Maybe somebody that we know. What are the, some of the signs or the indicators of that? How do we engage in order to support them, come alongside of them? And also, how do we maintain healthy boundaries in that process? And see, these are some of the things that we want to walk through together. You're going to have some pastoral voices in there, some voices within the community. This is not a counseling session. It's not licensed professionals coming in. It's more of all of us kind of walking through this together and going on a journey of how we can support and learn a little bit from one another. A couple of things I'd mention there is you didn't need to have attended the one, the one that happened a few weeks ago to come to this. It's going to be kind of an isolated conversation on its own. So if you missed that one, it's okay. Come in. This will still be relevant. And also, when we say conversation, we mean that in a certain way, meaning no one is going to call on you, have you stand up and share all of your difficult struggles and secrets of life. Okay, you're not going to have to do that in there. You can simply sit in, listen quietly, take in what, what is, uh, speaks to you, and go on about your day in that moment. Okay, so we invite you out to this. You can check it out online or grab one of these cards at the Welcome Center. It uh, tells you information on how to sign up. We'd appreciate if you do sign up because then we know how many people are going to be attending here. Okay, so we hope to see you out there. Yeah, we've been in a conversation, another one, um, the last couple weeks on the Gospel of John. And we have been talking about how John really, through the Spirit of God, tells us how Jesus really provides to us um, the answers to the deepest questions of life. In fact, I would say he coheres life together. We find that in our God. Um, and he, John goes into this in many different ways, and in particular this week, this is our Communion Sunday where we celebrate communion together um, uh, itself, a way in which we approach relationship with God and with each other as his community of faith, as what is called his body in Scripture, the body of Christ. And while we do this today, I figured it would be a good time for us to talk about substance and symbols, um, because we're going to be receiving, of course, the symbols of communion today and the bread and then the cup. When I say those words, what I mean is symbols are the representation of something that is real. It represents and points to something that is real. But of course, a substance, something substantive, is, some, is the thing that is real, the thing that makes the real change, the real transformation. 
And that's what I believe John shares with us here. We've been starting every week with John chapter 1 because he gives us an introduction right there that he unpacks later in his his book, the Gospel of John. And so we're going to start there again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This is, this is the Word, the divine one who was not only God himself, but was in special relationship with the Father in the beginning. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He's light. He's life. Like I said, he makes life cohere. He defines it and gives it significance. John goes on to tell us in verse 14, the Word became flesh, Now we know that is Jesus. That's when this divine one decided to take on a human nature so he could be known. He made his dwelling, we're told, among us. He could be known and touched and experienced and understood as one of us. And we've seen his glory, we're told, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. There's that intimate relationship again, full of grace and truth. I want to point those two things out. If you notice, first of all, those of you who are kind of Bible students, which I know we all are, right, because we've been reading through the Gospel of John. We mentioned that in week one. If you haven't yet, it's a chapter a week. Start in on it now, or even a chapter a day. I mean, start in on it now, and you'll be amazed at what God will speak through this, okay? But if you haven't, that's okay. Let's look at it. But some of the Bible students are probably saying the one and only son who came from the Father Okay, where's the, where's the spirit in this, right? We all know what the Godhead is, the Trinity. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one God that we are revealed, that's revealed from Scripture. But where's the spirit? I'm glad you asked. Stay tuned. Because John definitely shows us that. But he also said that Jesus was full of what? Grace and truth. And we learned in week one, that doesn't just mean that he brought grace along in a special way for us, but it means that literally grace emanates from Jesus. It literally pours out from who he is. Remember that grace pours out from him. And so John 1 also tells us he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Interesting. Something about, uh, in, something in human nature that w- when God shows up, we tend to want to run the other way. When God comes to say something or, or, or offer something that we should say yes to, we tend to say no. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will. None of these natural ways in which children come into this world, but born of God. In a sense, he's already telling us the birth in this world is almost symbolic compared to another more real, more substantial birth of substance, to be born of God. And so what we're going to be looking at today is this basic idea that we just saw, what we call the gospel message, what we call being born from God, or to be saved, you might have heard, or salvation. It's what he said here, God giving us the right to be children of God. And we're going to look at this in the time we have by a few different encounters that go through the Gospel of John, in which I believe Jesus shows us the difference between symbols and substance, and how sometimes we often miss that. And it, uh, it takes him to bring our understanding to it. Uh, the Gospel of John, if you remember, in week one, we looked at how it had a basic layout. The first part of it, chapter 1, shows his identity. We just looked at that. And then the next chapters go into people who challenge his identity. They don't understand. They misunderstand his identity and and what it was he was trying to bring. And then in chapters uh, beyond that, we start to see him ground his followers, his disciples, in his identity. He gives them grounding in him. And then 
it leads to ultimately his condemnation of his identity and then ultimately to the confirmation of his identity. We're going to see him walk through a few of these sections and in some encounters we're going to explore this together. The first moment we see is that Jesus comes across a man. He had been out for some time. People were aware of Jesus. They were aware not only of him but the miraculous things he was able to do that clearly seemed to point in a direction of where someone might find God. And at one moment, a teacher of the scripture, somebody who's pretty well versed in it, approaches him at night. His name is Nicodemus. And in this moment, he starts off by telling Jesus, I, I know that you must be a teacher from God because no one could do the things you're doing unless God were with him. So I'm here. I need an answer. I'm seeking you for your understanding as to how we approach God. And I think what he gets completely blows Nicodemus' hair and beard back. He was not expecting this at all. And so we pick it up in John chapter 3 where Jesus says to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He's telling this to a person who knew the scriptures inside and out, who th thought he knew the process, the way, the rules. All, he knew all the laws. He knew every single thing he had to do in order to make it to God. And here's Jesus saying, you will not see it unless you're born again. Well, you can see Nicodemus' bewilderment here. Right? He responds and says, you're local, <laughs> basically. He's like, how can somebody be born when they're old? I mean, come on, man. I'm, I'm standing here. I mean, who knows? He was in his 70s, maybe, maybe older. All right? And he's like, how am I going to be born again? I can't enter into my mother's womb a second time. What kind of craziness you talk here? <laughs> All right? And Jesus is basically telling him something that he is missing. He's going to symbols and he's not seeing the substance of what Jesus is saying. Jesus was telling him, there's something wrong with the first birth. You need to understand this. Nothing that, it's something that you can't overcome with your studying. You can't overcome with your understanding and your learning. You can't overcome with any accomplishment or anything you do. I was here this last week. I actually was sitting out in the atrium thinking about some thoughts for this message. And I saw a father come out with his two-year-old child from our, our daycare center, our early learning center, Handprints, and he was walking out, and as he was leaving, he let, uh, he let her play up on the stage in the atrium area for a little bit. And so she's kind of stomping around and playing there, and then all of a sudden I hear him say, after a few minutes, he says, okay, honey, we need to go. You can imagine what her response was. No. And then I heard him say, okay, sweetheart, he's trying to soften the blow. He said, okay, how about we go on the count of three? So he says, okay, ready? One, two, three. You go, I stay. <laughs> and so now he presses a little bit more. He says, sweetie, we've, come on, we've got to go. No, no, no. And then I can't, after he finally said, look, we have to go, I'm sorry. And he grabs her hand and starts to walk her away. And I can't even quote her response because the pitch of my voice doesn't go that high. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? As I'm looking at the scene, I'm like, this looks vaguely familiar. I've seen this somewhere. I think we all can identify with that. We all know this situation. It starts from an early age, but let's face it, it doesn't stay there. It's not just about two-year-old kids, but I think some of God's kids, maybe all of God's kids, have this same issue because the issue is called sin. And there are many different ways we can define it, but one particular teacher said it this way, sin is a condition of the heart. You see, it's not just something you do, but the things you tend to do that pull you away from God is because of a condition of the heart that bends us away from the will of God. You see, when we should be trusting that authority, 
Instead, we are bending away from that authority. And if we do it as a two-year-old with our parents, how much more do we as adults tend to do it with our spiritual father, right? Where he is asking us to go a certain way, even at times commanding us to trust him and to go a certain way, and our answer is no. He tells us to come along and follow him in a certain direction, and we say, you go, I stay. That's what we do. So it's a condition of the heart that bends us away from the will of God. And he even goes on to even say it this way, which I found capturing. He says, it's any thought, any word, a facial expression, an action that does not flow out from the treasuring of Jesus. That's sin. When we begin to push God out, when we begin to, we suspend our trust and we begin to go our own way and say, you go, I'm staying over here. Or when it should be a yes, it's a no. Anything like that begins to lead us that way. You see, we were told his own would not receive him. And we all struggle with this. And it spreads. I, I was recently working in my yard, and some time ago I was told by an arborist, she had experience in plants and everything, and she said, this particular weed here you need to get out of your yard. It's called garlic mustard weed. It smells a little bit garlicky when you pull it. That's why it's called that. And she said, if you don't get rid of this, this weed, two things. It seeds like crazy. It reseeds. It'll be everywhere. She said, but it also has a root that poisons the soil and kills the plants around it, which helps it to spread even more. She said, so if you, just, if you don't want a whole yard full of this alone, it's not the greatest looking thing, she said, you're going to probably want to start pulling it. So I've been working on that. But that, to me, was a picture of sin because sin seeds quickly. It didn't, it didn't just stay with two-year-olds. That is actually the result of it being in all of, of, of our humanity. And it poisons the things and hurts the soil around it. It damages what God has made. That's the picture of it. And so like a good parent, we have the Spirit coming along and God coming along to try to guide us and, and give us a new way, a new direction, a new birth that he calls it. And so while Nicodemus was looking for a process or some answer, tell me what I need to do, the reality is Jesus was going to show him a substance much greater. And so Jesus goes on and says, very, very, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now, immediately we're taken to symbols a lot of times. We think when we see that water and the Spirit, we think the water is the natural birth. Or we look at water and we say, you must be talking about baptism here. Baptism's important. It's, it's chief in the church, but it's, it's a symbol. It's not the substance. In fact, Jesus here is actually pointing to the scripture Nicodemus would have known in the Bible. There was an Old Testament scripture that mentioned one, and it said, who can gather the wind in his fists? Who has the authority to do that? Who has the authority to bind up the waters in his garment? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. And it was actually pointing to the father and his son. And he was revealing this to Nicodemus, saying, if you know the scripture, if you're a student, you, the answer is there. Look and understand this. I'm the one who carries the waters and the wind. See, because the spirit is like the breath of God. Okay, the spirit, our spirit is breath. God's spirit is breath. But he's God himself. He's the third person of the Godhead. And he has a particular a way in which he he engages us and draws us to God. And Jesus kind of tells it here. He says, he goes on to capture this idea of breath or wind. And he says, the wind blows where it pleases. 
You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, Jesus is saying, if you experience this new birth in God, if he opens your eyes to that understanding, then he is going to move in your life in ways you don't control, in ways that you don't set the rules and the tone. You, don't, you can't net it down to A, B, and C, do these things, and then you're good. He's going to move and transform. There was a, uh, a, a poem about the wind that said it this way. How, how do you make sense of the wind? Which way does it go? Backward? Forward? Around you when it blows? How do you make sense of the wind? Do you follow it around? Run from its great power? Order it to stand down? How do you make sense of the wind? Do you really need to understand? Or do you just need to listen and hear it speaking and see it rustling and feel it touching and know it moves through the soul of a man? The Spirit, like the wind, moves through us and guides us and shapes and directs. And that's what Jesus promised. And that's what he was revealing to Nicodemus, the substance of the Spirit. Didn't we just sing, it's your breath in our lungs? That is what we need to be seeking, the Spirit of God. And so Jesus goes on from this encounter and comes a little bit later to a a moment near a well of water where they would draw water to drink. And he comes across a woman there. And they have some conversation. And she realizes again that this, this man may seem to have certain answers and understanding about who God is. And he, Jesus in that moment looks to her and says, you're drawing from this well to get water, but I, I'm going to tell you about a different water that you need. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water of the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see the water is back again? You know, be born of the water and the spirit. And Jesus is now telling her who that water is, who that living water is, that once you drink of him, you will never be thirsty in the same way again. You know, when you're thirsty... I bring this bottle of water up here because occasionally I'll get dry as I'm speaking. And is there any feeling like when you're dry and parched? Right? To just feel that thirst slaked. Is there anything quite like that? But the reality is before this is over, I might have to use that again. I'm going to get thirsty again. And Jesus is telling her, this is a water that once you have it, you will never thirst. You can't find the bottom of the well. And you can keep drawing, and it will always be there, overflowing, welling up inside of you. And so this is the substance that he's trying to share with her. And it's funny, just like with Nicodemus, she turns right around and asks a question, and she goes right to symbols. Like we all do, we kind of go to those outward forms, don't we? And we miss the substance beneath it. So she, she replies and says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. I see you've got answers here, so tell me something. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, But you Jews, you you claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Hey, tell me where I need to worship to really find God. Point to me the location. You know, what what church or what time should I be at church or how often should I be at church, right? Or how much do I need to do when I'm there? Or just give me that answer. And once I have that formula, then I know I'm good. And Jesus replied and basically told her, you don't see it in in this, but he says right before this, he says, there's a time coming, it's now, you're not going to worship on that mountain. You're not going to worship on this mountain. But the time has come when the true worshipers worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. You see, to the Spirit of God, location is just a symbol. 
It's not that it's unimportant. It points to something, but it's not the substance. It's not location. The, the substance is immersion, to immerse ourselves in the spirit who is the water and the wind and to let him pervade our lives. It's funny that when she looked to symbols and mentioned these symbols, do you notice what these symbols did to the people? It divided them. When you only point to processes and symbols without the real substance of the spirit, it divides. And there's only one thing that can unify us truly. Ephesians 4, keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit that's his work. Just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, it goes on to say there's one God and Father, one Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the Trinity? It's always at work. If we don't understand that work, we, we divide. G.K. Chesterton one time shared a story. He said, suppose there was a commotion and people came together and said that they were trying to decide what to do with a lamppost. And, and, and then one particular person says, well, let's consider, first of all, the, the value of light. Maybe we, but before that's done, they kind of push that person on the side. They tear down the lamppost, and they all celebrate the fact that they've now done this deed and accomplished this thing. He says, but then what you tend to find is some of the people pulled the lamppost down because you know, they wanted an electric light. Some maybe pulled it down because they didn't like old iron. Some just pulled it down because you know, they like darkness, because their deeds are evil. Some thought it wasn't enough of a lamppost, some too much. Some acted because they wanted to smash machinery. Some some because they wanted to smash something. And then he says, and then there is war in the night. And no one is knowing whom they strike. They're hitting each other. And gradually, inevitably, they come to the conviction that maybe it was right after all, that maybe they should have asked themselves if the light was good. But only now, what they might have discussed under the lamp, they now must discuss in the dark. Jesus is the light of the world, we're told in the Gospel of John. He sends the Spirit who brings unity and peace if we move away from those things and we turn to just processes and forms and symbols and think that walking through those motions is going to be enough, we will divide. Tell me that isn't a spirit of the age that we've seen right now, tearing stuff down before we even understand why. Only the Spirit of God can bring true worship, true peace, true unity. So Jesus goes on, and he encounters some people who, interestingly, had just seen him perform some pretty amazing things. Right before the encounter we're going to look at, they saw him literally gather up the wind and the waters, as we talked about. Because there was a moment in which we're told the wind was blowing hard and on, the, on, the, on the lake and people were out of control in the boat. And the next thing you know, here comes Jesus just walking across the water. He's in control of the wind and the waters. And then shortly before that, he sat 5,000 people down. They were all hungry, had, had listened to him talk for a while. And so he, he finds out one of, the, one of his followers got a TV dinner sitting over there. And he grabs this thing and divides it up for 5,000 people. I mean, you know, I know hungry mans are pretty big, but that's a lot of people to feed, okay? And so they witness these things. They know that he's doing these things, and they show up to find him. And the first thing that they ask him is, hey, do a miracle, and then we're going to know that you have something to say from God. Think about the perspective, okay? And then they ask him basically, hey, you know, give us, give us some food. We heard you fed those people. Give us some food. We'd like some food too. And Jesus, of course, challenges them on the fact that, again, his own would not receive him. 
And so he begins to speak to them of substance. And he says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's the thirst again in the water. Whoever, but then he goes on to say this, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Now that is tough. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, that's a hard teaching. Who can accept that? His, his blood and his flesh? We've got to eat and drink? Well, again, they're getting caught up in symbols. In fact, one of the early things that stuck with the church and some of the Romans and others of the culture around them who didn't really understand the early followers of Jesus held something to their account that they believed that the early Christians were cannibals because they heard they were eating flesh and drinking blood. And they completely missed it, right? But don't we? We tend to miss what God is doing. And, and, and Jesus here is using a symbol, but that's not the substance. In fact, I find it very interesting that the Gospel of John, the very one that records Jesus saying these, these words, eat my flesh and drink my blood, is the only Gospel that later at the final communion supper where they receive the bread and the cup, the one, things that symbolize this, he never shares that. The other gospels have the bread and the cup. Take this bread, it's my body. Take this cup, it's my blood. But this gospel doesn't. I wonder why. I wonder if John maybe in fact was trying to make a point that already the church was, was dwelling too much and focusing too much on the symbols and on the process of church and faith and not understanding the substance behind it. And so Jesus goes on to try to clarify this and he says in a verse later, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. You see, he was saying to the spirit of God, wafers and wine or grape juice are just symbols. The substance to him is words. Not wafers, words. His words. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. And what he speaks to our soul is spirit and life. But I would also say this. If he is influencing us by him, the living word, what are our words like? Are they filled with the spirit and with life? There's a particular writing on this. I wonder if you might identify with this. It's called Sticks and Stones. Sometimes my words bring comfort and warm a shivered soul. Sometimes my words are chilling and leave friends in the cold. Sometimes my words are velvet, so soft on waiting ears. Sometimes my words are salty and prompt a flow of tears. Sometimes my words are healing balm, they salve a weeping wound. Sometimes my words are acid wash and burn with acrid fume. So sticks and stones may break a bone, but words will never hurt is a proverb only halfway true as measured by my words. Since God says what you measure out is measured back to you, it's high time love should fill my words and make this proverb true. Are our words filled with the Spirit, with love and peace and unity? Or like me, do you find that your words only maybe halfway get there? Maybe it's time to turn back to the Spirit and pray and call for him in words like this, you who are faithful in every jot and tittle, in every word and syllable, may every whisper from my lips drip with you. And so Jesus was pointing them to the substance, not the symbol. goes on, and we get to the point in which Jesus now is um, investing into and, 
and building into his disciples and grounding them in his identity. And this, we see this moment in that Last Supper, John chapter 13. We're told Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Think about that. He had all power. And what did he do with that power? He poured water, interesting, water. He poured it, the living water is pouring water into a basin, and then he began to wash his disciples' feet like a servant, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. This moment, this communion that we share today is the central heartbeat of the worship service. This is the moment they were in here. And what we have in that moment is the living water with all power, surrendering that in service to wash others. And then he goes on to say, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So to me, to the Spirit of God, power, especially human power, are just empty symbols. The substance is our position, not our power. What is our position? By that I mean are we standing strong and towering above the rest, or are we kneeling? That's what the Spirit of God is communicating to the church. To the Spirit of God, churching even, how we church, how many times we show up, what we do, how we prove ourselves, what titles we hold, how known we are, all of these other things that we might want to chase after, because in our minds, let's face it, it's some level of power. It's some level of influence. It's some level of significance or importance. But to the Spirit of God, that kind of churching is just symbols. The substance is cleansing. To wash one another's feet, he said. But let's not look at the symbol of washing feet. Let's talk about the substance of that. What, are we supporting one another in our confession? We deal with things. We struggle and we sin. Are we just doing that alone or are we coming alongside one another and walking that out in a way that we can wash one another's feet? Galatians 5, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught, overcome by a sin, you who live by the Spirit, restore them gently. Watch yourselves though. Don't get prideful. Watch yourselves, because you might also be tempted. And then this, carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's struggles. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit. Wash one another. Do we do that, or do we hide it? Serious question. Because I think it's an easy thing to play church. But do we ask ourselves questions like this? A sin that I struggle with is a person I turn to for support and accountability in that is and the last time I turned to them was if we can't fill out the ends of those questions perhaps we are turning to symbols and not to substance. I can tell you I am thankful that I have a few good brothers in my life that we each turn to one another. And at times of struggling and weakness, we turn to one another. And we, through that accountability and that washing of one another, that dark sin is brought to the light and the light of the world cleanses that. That's what he shared with us to do. Apart from that, I don't really think we're churching. And if that's not enough for you, let me just end that with this. You look at the Bible itself. You have the Apostle John himself in his first letter to the church said, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we lie. 
He's confessing right there that he's a sinner. The apostle Peter authorized one of the gospels, the gospel of Mark. And guess what that gospel tells us? How three times he denied Jesus. He was okay with that, being in there. He didn't hide it. And the apostle Paul many times said, Christ came and died to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I'm one of the top. O wretched man that I am, he said, who, who will save me from this body of death that just wants to sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. They didn't hide it. So why do we? Why do we feel we need to? The Spirit of God spoke on that issue to us. Confession is good for the soul, we say. Maybe high time we practice that with one another. I realize it's to every person who you decide to do that with. Sometimes it not always makes the most sense to go to a spouse or siblings. Sometimes that stuff just gets in the way of a relationship. But a good friend, somebody who you know you can trust, who walks alongside you, who know, you know has your best interests at heart, that's how we can seek it. Confession is good for the soul, but it's not enough because salvation is necessary. And God knew this. He knew that there were stains to the deepest part of our soul that make us say no, no, no to God. And so he had to do more. And this is where Jesus said as he washed their feet, Peter responded to him, interestingly, and said, no, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. See, there it is. No, no, no. We just, his own don't receive him. But then Jesus answered him, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And this is what he did on the cross. And this is what we celebrate in communion. Because in John chapter 19, we're told, now he knowing that everything had been finished, that he was on that cross and he had been nailed there, and probably the very one who nailed him there didn't even know why he was nailing him there because he missed it, just like we missed it. And we tend to miss it. But as he was there hanging there and he knew that he had paid the debt to God for our sin, for all who would receive that from him, it is paid, it is dealt with. And so we're told that as the scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. The living water hangs there, thirsty. And when he had received the drink, John tells us, he said, it's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The one who sends the living breath, the wind of the spirit, now gives up his breath and his spirit. And then John tells us one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. See, blood and water poured from his flesh, and then a profound substance, more than any symbol, was released. Grace, God's amazing grace, poured from him. Grace emanates and pours from him. Do we hear the testimony of the Spirit? Do we see what John was telling us? 1 John chapter 5 says, There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. That's the substance of the cross. But do we hear it, or do we miss it? The man who drove the nails in and rammed his sin straight through, did he know who those nails held up? Do I know? Do you? In blindness of our hearts, we miss what's right before our face and hammer deeply in the sin that killed amazing grace. Amazing that our pounding act produced so sweet a sound when grace said, Father, forgive them, and you and I were found. So will we lay the hammer down and look into his face, our wretched hands there washed by him who bled amazing grace? That is the truth 
of the most famous verse that Jesus said in that first encounter with Nicodemus. We know it well. It's at almost every football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him will be a child of God. You won't perish. Your sin won't separate us from God, but we'll have eternal life. It's a simple thing. It's the testimony of the Spirit. And you may be sitting in here or sitting online and you may have never heard it before. And that's okay. This is the moment to tie in. This is the moment we receive communion together and you don't have to be a member of the church here, but we ask that you're a follower of Jesus, that you believe through the testimony of the Spirit as to who he is. And all you have to simply do is receive what you've seen here. To simply ask him, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I know I've broken your world. I know I've damaged things and poisoned the soil. I know the ways in which I've done it, and I've hid it in secret. But Lord, I ask you, cleanse me. Wash me through your death on that cross. Give me your spirit and transform my life. You can say that today in your seat, and then you can take communion. You can receive that grace from him. If that's something that you already have received in the past, well, maybe today is a day to realize you've been turning more to symbols. And maybe it's a day to turn back to the substance of who he is in your life. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for your amazing grace, Jesus, that you pour out into our lives. So we pray, Lord, that as we press into your word, into prayer, do a work in us by your spirit that is truly substantive, we pray. We are opening ourselves up to you, Lord. We're not saying no, no, no. We're saying yes, Lord, come and do this work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.